Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. morning on a Friday, the 13th of October. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York. Tom Keen in Washington in our Bloomberg 991 studios. Lucky on this Friday, the 13th, to have another great lineup of guests from the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. The new Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, David Malpass, is going to join us. Daryl Rubini will be here as well, along with David Rubenstein. And uh, we're going to have an interview in just a couple of minutes with the President and CEO of the Fed Reserve Bank of Boston. Eric Rosengren is going to sit down with our Michael McKean. Now, we go to Boston. Our colleague Michael McKean, international economics and policy correspondent, there with a big interview. Here's Mike. We know the what. We know how you're uh, thinking about monetary policy going forward. But I want to ask about the why. You've said that a December move is justified and three maybe next year. But can you tell us why? What justifies that kind of policy? So the unemployment rate is now at 4.2 percent. By historical standards, that's a pretty low unemployment rate. Inflation is lower than we might have expected at this stage. We're well below our 2% inflation target. But my expectation is that that's a temporary transition. And if you look both at surveys that the summary of economic projections the participants in the FOMC provide, as well as private forecasters, they're expecting inflation to be much closer to 2% next year. So my worry is that we get to a place that is unsustainable, and that can be reflected either in wages and prices starting to go up too quickly, or it can be reflected in asset prices going up too quickly. What we want is a sustainable recovery, and that would imply keeping the unemployment rate fairly close to what we expect full employment to be. But a year ago, Eric Rosengren to Bloomberg News said that uh, we'll presumably be very close to our 2%, if not our 2% inflation target by the end of 2017. I'm not picking on you, but that's the kind of forecast that has drawn uh, some questions, shall we say, on Global Wall Street? Right. Well, if you look back to March, we still were expecting 2% inflation. And one of the temporary things that occurred at that time was the wireless pricing change that actually had a big impact on the current numbers. What we're trying to get is the underlying trend in prices. And so there can be relative prices that can change a lot. That's one reason why we focus on core inflation rather than total inflation, because sometimes we get big spikes up in oil that are not predicted. Sometimes oil prices go way down, and that's not predicted as well. So we're not trying to address all the relative price changes that occur in the economy. We're trying to get that underlying rate. And so the reported inflation for right now is quite low, but I think it's partly a reflection of temporary factors. We're about to have more temporary factors. The hurricane is likely to have had temporary effects on inflation as well. So oil prices are a bit higher because the refineries have been shut down and uh, places in Texas that were affected by the hurricane. And some kinds of housing supplies and other things may be a little bit elevated as a result of the rebuilding that's going to go on. That's not something we should react to either. So we can have periods where we get relative prices that go down or up. We want to get that underlying inflation rate. My expectation is we will get an underlying inflation rate that will be relatively close to 2% over the course of next year. Well, the idea that there's these temporary idiosyncratic uh, reasons for inflation being low uh, on the domestic front is one thing, but inflation's low around the world. Have inflation dynamics changed? So it's certainly a possibility that inflation dynamics have changed. I think it's too soon to make that prediction. Uh, one of the reasons why inflation has been low around the world is we've had a long, slow recovery from very serious financial conditions, both in here, Japan, Europe, all experienced very significant recessions, very elevated unemployment rates, which meant that inflation was much lower than it would have been if we had stayed at a more sustainable pace for the economies around the world. We're now getting to a different stage of that cycle where, at least in the United States, we're already beyond what my estimate of full employment is. In Japan, they're close to full employment as well. Europe still has a way to go. But I would say that the labor markets are improving around the world. And that's one of the reasons why I'm expecting inflationary pressures to get us back up to 2% over the course of the next year. 
Well, you say unemployment is below your measure of full employment. Uh, the inflation rate doesn't respond, though. Do you question yourself? Do you say, maybe I don't understand what's going on with inflation anymore? So we certainly have to ask ourselves whether there's been a more permanent shift in inflation dynamics that we don't understand. <clears throat> I think at this point, it's too early to make that kind of judgment. Wages and salaries are slowly going up. They're still at a level that's relatively low by historical standards, but we're definitely seeing wage growth. We're definitely seeing the employment cost index go up, and those are indications of a tight labor market. And we should remember it's only the last couple of quarters where we've had an unemployment rate that would be below my 4.7% uh, full employment. So you still believe in the Phillips curve model? I believe that if labor markets get tight enough that you'll start seeing wage and price pressures over time. Does the Fed have an alternative explanation uh, if, you, if, if that model doesn't come through? If we don't see inflation uh, start to rise again, then what do you do? Well, we'd have to try to understand what the reasons for that are. <clears throat> there certainly have been a variety of uh, explanations that have been thrown out. One would be greater globalization as a possibility. If you look at the imports that we have in the United States, it's not dramatically different than 10 years ago. So I'm not sure globalization actually does a very good job of explaining why inflation would be persistently low when we had very tight labor markets. But that's something we'd have to continue to look at. Uh, people talk about structural changes in the economy, but for a persistent change in prices, you need that structural change to keep continuing going forward. So the important thing is we're trying to get at that underlying rate of wages and prices, and it would be very unusual if we got very, very tight labor markets and there was no response. It would basically be saying labor demand and supply no longer works, and, or that uh, corporations, as they start facing higher wages, are willing to continue to shrink their price margins and my expectation is we will see as labor markets tighten, wages go up, and we'll see that firms want to maintain their profit margins. And so with a lag, you'll start seeing prices move up as well. You talk to CEOs all the time in your district. What are they telling you about their pricing power? Uh, they're actually telling me that things are changing now, that they are seeing much more wage pressures. They're finding it more difficult to find employees now in a much wider range of uh, job categories than it was previously. So before, it would be people in the computer industry that were worried about cybersecurity in pretty isolated areas. Now you're hearing stories that are much more general about difficulty in getting bank tellers, difficulties in getting bakers. These aren't jobs that you'd normally expect to be in short supply. So I think those are examples where we're starting to see the labor market heat up and you're seeing it in uh, wage increases in those places where labor markets are quite tight. Uh, CPI today, retail sales, you've mentioned that the numbers are going to be distorted for a while because of the hurricanes. So how are you going to look at the data in December if the data aren't necessarily giving you an accurate picture of what's happening in the economy between now and then? Certain data series are more or less affected by the weather, so we'll have to factor that in. A good example is the employment report. So the payroll employment number was quite low. Um, the reason it was quite low is definitely hurricane related. It was particularly in uh, leisure and hospitality areas where there were less employment. And that reflected the fact that for the employment report, um, if you're not paid in that week, uh, you're not included as employed for the employment report on the payroll side. But on the survey, even if you didn't get paid in that week, uh, you're still included as being employed. So the unemployment rate actually went from 4.4 to 4.2% unemployment. So between those two, the series that I would think to be less distorted would be the unemployment rate, which is from a survey that's not going to be as affected as the payroll survey, where it's uh, surveying firms. So that's an example that we're just going to have to look through the data and try to figure out which data is most affected by the kinds of shocks that we've gotten from uh, the series of hurricanes that have hit the United States and obviously devastated those areas, but also made a lot of our data less reliable. We are talking with Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren worldwide on Bloomberg Television and Radio. You raise rates in December, maybe. Uh, is the current level of interest rates another rate rise inhibiting growth in any way or keeping otherwise qualified people maybe from getting jobs, as some of your colleagues have suggested might be the case? Well, we're expecting growth in the second half this year, at least at the Boston Fed, to be roughly 2.5%. 
So that's faster than we think uh, potential is in the economy, and that would imply that the unemployment rate would keep going down. So we want to make sure that we don't get to a place where uh, we don't have a sustainable continuing recovery. And so that's why I think uh, gradually increasing rates does make sense. We're going to be at a point uh, where potentially we get an unemployment rate below 4%. That is an area where I would expect to see more obvious trends in the wage and salary data, and we'll see if that actually um, does happen. Claudio Borio, he's the chief economist at the Bank for International Settlements, has argued the only thing that low rates are doing these days is leading to an unsustainable buildup of debt, which will have its own problems down the road. Do you agree with that? I mean, one of my concerns with low rates for a long period of time is that people do try to reach for yield. And that can be both households and firms, that if you're a household and saving for retirement, it is a problem if you're keeping your money in a short-term CD that's paying a very low interest rate and you start taking more risk than you otherwise would do. Firms have that same kind of behavior. So I do worry that you end one consequence of very low interest rates for a long period of time is that people take on more risk and then when something does happen in the economy, a negative shock occurs, that they're less prepared to be able to handle that. So that's one reason to want to normalize interest rates when we get to a point where we think the economy is likely to get back to 2% inflation and where we're already very close, if not beyond full employment. Do you think there's any danger that uh, the economy moves towards contraction in the next few years? When would you see this business cycle coming to an end? So economists are fond of saying that uh, recoveries don't die of old age, which is that it's not particularly time dependent. It really is a reflection of either policy mistakes that occur with fiscal or monetary policy or mistakes that occur somewhere else in the world that generate results that we don't anticipate. So recessions are really hard to predict. And if you look at most private forecasters, they almost never predict them. So it, those unanticipated events, by their very nature, are difficult to predict. I'm not expecting uh, a recession in the next year or two, and I don't see anything in the data that tells me that that's likely. But could there be some geopolitical or other kind of shock? Uh, that's certainly possible. There are job interviews underway in Washington. I know. You're not going to comment on uh, prospective Fed chairs individually, but let me ask you this. How much sway does a new chairman have? Uh, some people have different ideas about how the Fed should be run. Somebody walks in the door tomorrow, can they say we're going to change the way we do policy? It is a committee, so you have to be able to bring along the committee. So leadership matters and who the chair is uh, does make a difference to how monetary policy uh, evolves over time. But they do have to work with the committee. Um, frequently, there's a lot of influence that occurs from staff around the Federal Reserve System. So it's not just that the Fed presidents and governors, we have a very uh, competent and uh, staff that goes through and provides a lot of the briefing documents. So the change may occur, but it probably evolves relatively slowly. You normally don't see big discrete changes in central bank policy because there's a lot of role for the staff and a lot of the people that are presidents are, were here before and will be here after. How much influence does the president of the United States have over the Federal Reserve? Well, certainly has the influence uh, through the, who they appoint. And right now, not only is the chair up, but there are a number of other slots open. Um, so the president gets to pick those people, and those people do make a difference for how monetary policy evolves. So in that way, I, the president has a big influence. Uh, once the person is in their position, it's a little like the Supreme Court, that there's a lot less influence once the people are in those positions. And that's by design. The goal is to have a central bank that's independent of politics. And so there is some involvement in the appointment process, but after that, Hopefully whoever's picked is primarily focused on getting the right outcome for the American people. Let me ask you a question for our radio listeners here in Boston on uh, 106.1. Uh, you've talked about equity prices and the possibility that asset prices get distorted. ETFs, long only, mutual funds. Uh, is there any imbalance there? Uh, do you foresee any problems in the future? So one of the areas that I've raised concerns in the past is the commercial real estate sector, where I think the valuations have gotten outside of historical norms. So that's an example where 
Um, I would certainly be a little bit more conservative and worried that those uh, valuations may not be sustainable over a longer time period. So I think there are areas of the market that people should take a close look at and see if they're comfortable with the valuations. But you're good with the, the Boston economy right now. The Boston economy is doing quite well, but I would say that we're seeing a lot of commercial real estate going up in Boston. We're seeing an unemployment rate that's getting quite low. So some of the things that I worry about in terms of sustainability in the long run are reflected in how well the Boston economy is doing. David Gura here in New York in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Tom Keen this week in Washington, D.C. He's there for the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund uh, and the World Bank. Uh, those taking place at IMF headquarters uh, in Foggy Bottom in Washington, D.C. And uh, a host of great interviews to come throughout the morning. Nuriel Rubini is going to join us in a bit. We go now to Washington, D.C. to my co-host, Tom Keen at IMF headquarters. Here he is. Well, I welcome Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, good morning for another conversation, our first conversation of the day here at the meetings of the International Monetary Fund. There's no one better to do that with than David Lipton. He is the American representative, if you will, to the IMF. Think of John Lipsky of a number of uh, years ago. But far more than that, he is one of our frontline international economists working with Jeffrey Sachs in Russia. It seems a lifetime alone, of course, with his service to the IMF and to America along the route. You wrote a Wesleyan and Harvard. <laughs> Is anything out of your textbooks at Wesleyan and Harvard appropriate today, or are you working with the new economics at the International Monetary Fund? Well, I think it's interesting that so many uh, old problems came back after the global financial crisis. Uh, we're applying some very basic economic concepts and... Uh, uh, in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy, I think a lot uh, that we learned in school is actually very useful. Some of that is the challenge on the fiscal side. Catherine Mann of OECD brought this up in a conversation uh, this morning. I think of your G20 dinner last night. Okay, Secretary Mnuchin's in the room, Madame Lagarde's in the room, but they're not sitting together. I get that. But the tension is there about the appropriate use of tax policy and tax reform. What have you learned in the last 24 hours about this raging debate between Trump administration criticism and the mandate of Article 4 of the IMF? Well, first, I think the U.S. economy recovering is very important. It's part of a strong global uh, recovery. I think we have uh, a lot uh, that we view in common about the state of the world. Um, as far as tax policy is concerned, let me just say the IMF has favored tax reform in the United States for a very long time. We think that the tax system could be much more supportive of uh, investment. It could provide a stronger position for workers, for middle-class Americans. And by strengthening the revenue base, it could set the stage for keeping debt from rising further and being in a better position uh, to be able to deal with the expenses in the entitlement system that are coming up. But the most important part of tax reform is to broaden, the, to broaden the base, to be able to eliminate tax loopholes, lower rates, and uh, create a, a stronger <clears throat> foundation. And across the work that you lead, and that Maurice Opsfeld leads here for Madame Lagarde, there's the blue book, the red book, the green book. And they're all intertwined and intermingled. You know this from your fabulous work at Citigroup on risk years ago. The bottom line is tax reform is about fiscal responsibility. Is the IMF worried about fiscal responsibility yeah, but, in America? But fiscal responsibility has two sides. It's, of course, tending to the books of the government, but it's also making sure that the economy's growth is robust enough and the tax base broad enough uh, to be able to make sure that there'll be fiscal sustainability over time. So I think that, that one can have both, and what makes sense is a well-designed tax system, one that uh, will help the middle mm -hmm. class, one that will help incentivize investment. I think that could be good for America, and it could be good for the world. What's fascinating here is the debate over wage growth, the mystery of wage growth across many of the countries of the International Monetary Fund. Yeah. Our Michael McKee with an important conversation with President Rosengren of the Boston Fed today, and he basically did Econ 101 on labor yeah. supply and labor demand. Is wage growth dynamics different now yeah. across countries because of new technology and a new supply function well, we're, in labor? We're looking at that, and one of our books, uh, uh, Obsfeld's World Economic Outlook, has an important finding that goes a bit beyond what we Please. learned in school, which is that you know we look at how the unemployment rate 
uh, is the measure of slack, and that will tell you how responsive wages are going to be. But we're learning a new thing, which is that when there's a lot of involuntary part-time unemployment, when people are working part-time who'd really like to be working full-time, that's additional information. In fact, the countries where that's the case tend to have more sluggish wage growth. And that, I think, is the okay. case in the United States and is part of the picture. This is so important, folks. We're going to rip up the script here on this. I read a, 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 a paper once out of Austria on the uniqueness of part-time employment in Europe. I'm sure that our American viewers and listeners are unaware of the nuances, well, country to country, of the cultural structure of part-time versus full-time No, that's a good point. On, no, it's please. a good point, but I want to make a distinction that's important. If people want to work part-time, that's good. If they work part-time rather than not at all, it's good for them and it's a contribution right. to the economy. What I'm talking about is people who want to work full-time but they're part-time. That's a, me a measure of slack, and it may explain why wage growth is sluggish. It may also, in a sense, be good news, because it means there can be some more uh, growth without inflation. Should that be more aggressively debated at the key central banks, and particularly well, among the federal open no, I market think they're looking. People, I think people are looking at this, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be part of the story mm -hmm. uh, that uh, determines the ultimate pace of normalization, both in the United States and elsewhere. I want to go back to your historic work with Jeff Sachs. I spoke with Professor Sachs the other day of Columbia, folks, and this goes back to the frontier economies and the emerging markets of another time and place. Indeed. How is the Russian economy, how is Eastern Europe doing right now with the tumult of sanctions and geopolitics? Well, I was just in Russia and in Ukraine, and their situations are both uh, pertinent. You know, Russia's gone through a very tough decade with the um, global financial crisis, the oil shock, and the sanctions. They've come out of recession. I mean, the truth is that their policymakers handled this very well. In earlier times, they, they might not have done so well. Now their challenge is how to grow. Our projections for Russia are that they'll grow at maybe 1.5%, 1 1.7%. That's the same growth as Europe. So there'll be no more convergence, no more uh, Russian living standards rising to, uh, right. to European levels, which, you know, before the global financial crisis, they were on mm -hmm. a tear and they were catching up. So Russia really needs mm -hmm. to find a way to uh, free up their economy from the heavy footprint of the state and to try to be dynamic mm -hmm. and, and get in on the technological revolution that yeah. you were talking about earlier. With your huge remit, I was uh, irresponsible to not mention China. They have important political meetings coming up, don't they? Every interview we have is, sure. these are key meetings. They are, and uh, we'll be, you know, we don't uh, know much about the political, the, the political process in China, but we'll be looking to see what comes from these meetings in terms of economic policy and reform thrust. China's managed its economy well, but there are growing vulnerabilities, and there's the continuing need to rebalance the economy further towards uh, being a service-oriented, household income-based, uh, 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 growth-driven model. I hope that they want to go in that no. direction. David Lipton, thank you so much. He is, of course, with the International Monetary Fund. Tom Keenmaya, Bloomberg Surveillance co-anchor there, talking uh, with David Lipton, the first managing director of the International Monetary Fund, from the annual meetings of the IMF and World Bank in Washington, D.C., uh, a wide-ranging conversation there. Given the breadth of his uh, his remit, as Tom was just mentioning a moment uh, ago, uh, Tom asking him about uh, whether or not the uh, the textbooks that we have in economics classes today uh, tell us enough about the world we're living in uh, today. And, Tom, I was particularly struck by what he had to say about uh, one of our books, as he put it, uh, Maurice Obsfeld's World Economic Outlook and what it had to say about uh, technology. And it strikes me that he and others, including Fed Chair Janet Yellen, are now uh, reckoning more fully or more publicly with the, the issue, the role that technology is playing uh, in the labor market in particular. Yeah. These are extremely valuable books. I've already stolen three a, a copy, the blue book, the red book, the green book, from Michael McKee, <laughs> David Gura. Very good. My goal is to get you a brace of these books uh, today. I'll see if I can abscond from the IMF <laughs> with those. Uh, but the technology issue is a huge deal. The technology issue within all three of those, including Opsfeld's blue book, The World Economic Outlook, is an extreme mystery here. And David, this goes to productivity. Mm -hmm. I think that David Lipton would agree with Jacob Frankel, would agree with Sir Howard Davies, that the basic idea is to boost productivity, except you don't know where you're going or how you're going until you're five or even 10 years down the road. That's the huge 
guesstimate, if you will, of what we do in international economics. Tom, a touchstone in each of your interviews has been this debate over tax reform. Just remind us of the backstory there, the yes. IMF weighing in on, on tax reform uh, while yeah. in Washington, uh, D.C. Mm. Give us a sense of what the, what the argument is like. And now it's days of our lives, the gossip of international <laughs> economics. So, David, what happened was Sam Fleming over at the FT with Chris Giles wrote up an article that basically said the Trump administration was furious over how the IMF was meddling in U.S. tax reform. The IMF pointed out that under Article 4, they have every right to do that. There's no question about that. They have every right to review tax reform of any country. And they did that, and they did it over a longer timeline than what the Trump administration is critical of. This is a heated debate. I think it's been amended over the last few days. But all in all, it comes down to how will the tax reform advance through the legislative process on Capitol Hill. Like sands through an hourglass. Tom Kane in our Bloomberg surveillance setup there at the IMF World Headquarters in Washington, D.C. More coverage throughout the morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. And we welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide, the second day here of the meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, an eclectic set of guests, and what they all have in common is a real love of international economics. That would be David Melpass, iconic at Bear Stearns. I have clearly stated over the years that he is the clearest writer of economics I know, and he owns the word FAST, F-A-S-T, Malpass Economics has always been impatient economics, and he brings it to public service for President Trump as Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. I want to digress here. That's the job John Taylor had a few years ago. Exactly right. Tom, it's good to be on. Very would, nice to see would you. Would John Taylor make a good Fed chairman? I mean, he's got the international experience that you have now. Of, yes, he, he would, and, and others are. There are other candidates, and the important thing is for there to be more growth. You know, as you think about the the Fed, it's going gone through a giant transformation of its balance sheet. Right. So one of the hardest uh, challenges going forward is how do you find a way through that uh, that creates and allows and, and more this growth, is, this is small important. business growth. Can I get okay. that in right small, at the top? Uh, well, I, well, would, would it be a Malpass interview if we didn't get small <laughs> business in there right at the top? <laughs> Right now, at these meetings, the theme is, okay, things are better, but in every dinner, every right. lunch, it's but to move growth forward. What's the but for you and the Trump administration to move global growth forward? Secretary Mnuchin is the head of our delegation here. He sat last night with Janet Yellen uh, at the uh, at the dinner, and uh, Secretary Mnuchin has been emphasizing tax reform as a critical spot for U.S. growth to to uh, push forward regulatory reforms. And then we're taking that message to the world, really, and making the point that it benefits us if everyone grows. And while there is an acceleration of the world, Christine Lagarde talked about that last night. Uh, it's not enough yet. We'd like to see more growth both in the U.S. and abroad. Mario Draghi talked about the breadth of growth in Europe and how do you keep that sustained? How do you make right. that go forward? Minister Jaitley of, of India made the point that India has gone through two very difficult structural reforms, uh, their demonetization and their, right. their GST uh, tax change that they've done, and now they get some benefits from those structural reforms. At that dinner last night, I believe they had Secretary Mnuchin sit separately from Adam Lagarde, and of course there's this, this uproar over tax reform and what the IMF should be. Sam Fleming had this uh, in, the, in the FT. Give us new insight on what the Trump administration would like from the IMF, where the IMF has a responsibility to look at tax reform under Article 4. You know, this really is an economist against economist kind of a debate. So there is and has been for decades the issue that some economists think that higher tax rates uh, is good for the world because, you, uh, because you, you, you're able to distribute money to people through that mechanism. Mm -hmm. And others think, wait a minute, we ought to have a low rate on a broad base, and that's going to allow the private sector to do well. So that confrontation goes on in the IMF. As it goes into foreign <coughs> countries, it's often 
putting, I think, too much emphasis okay. on, the, on, 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 on more taxes. But then to follow on, and this goes to your wonderful analysis of debt and deficit over the decades you were at Bear Stearns, the distinction here is you move from tax reform to fiscal policy. Douglas Holtz-Eakin told us on Bloomberg Surveillance, former head of the CBO, and I would suggest someone sympathetic to MailPass economics, mm -hmm. Dr. Holtz-Eakin said, we have a vector of deficit to GDP that could be 5% or 6%, or heaven forbid, he said 7%. We can't allow that to happen. How can we have Trump tax reform and fiscal responsibility at the same time? I, I don't think that's exactly the right question. The question should be, our current tax code doesn't work. It simply blocks growth. All agree and on so that. Fair. You, you, that has to be fixed. And then separately, you can say, but and our spending policies really need to be reformed from, from the ground up. There needs to be a budget process that works, a debt limit that works. There needs to be restraint by, by politicians and on and on down the line. And that's something the Trump administration can work on, but the, 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 don't, don't put that together with the tax reform. Uh, that, so you that, don't want to combine a tax reform analysis with a fiscal policy analysis? I, I think the critical thing is to get the tax reform done, done early, so that people right. can begin investing mm -hmm. and hiring. The, the, the critical goal, remember, from the beginning of mm -hmm. the Trump campaign was how do you get more people employed, the participation rate to go higher, and get average right. wages to go up. So every time people are talking about policy, that's the context. You and Kevin Hassett are frontline economists. Do you have a voice within the administration? Are you spending your time jetting around the world? I hope not on private jets. You're on something more cost affordable, <laughs> unlike these other secretaries. But are you jetting around internationally, or do you and Hassett have a voice within the administration? So, you know, I'm going to Asia, and I'll be flying back economy class. Uh, oh, and so on. Yeah, no, this no, is, no, is too tall to fly economy. But tell you, my doctor that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell Secretary Mnuchin <laughs> that you are too tall to go economy. Uh, you know, we're, 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 for one, trying to save money wherever we can, trying to be re re restrained in our own view of what the world can, of what governments mm -hmm. can do within the world. The liberating the private sector is the highest priority, and that means downsizing a lot of the work streams. So I've made two trips so far, but mostly I'm working in the administration to find a way to have uh, 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 to have policies oriented toward right. American workers. That's the, I, and I know that sounds that sounds cliche, except that actually is what's going on every day in the government. You have one of the most important jobs in economics in the world as Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. You and I know the courage and exhaustion John Taylor faced after September 11th with his public service on these important issues. Maybe it's not as urgent now, but the fact is you've got to worry about Sweden and India and cashless societies, and you have have to worry about illegal corruption and crime in our Treasury flows. What have you learned about what we're doing, first of all, about cybersecurity, corruption and crime in our finance system? Those were talked about substantially yesterday. Christine Lagarde quoted John F. Kennedy saying, when you're when it's not raining, fix your roof. And so there was a lot of that going on. People are trying to reach around and there was a private, there were uh, private sector people involved yesterday, uh, uh, financial institutions th talking about their cybersecurity programs and how the U.S., uh, how the world, how governments around the world could help with that effort to uh, stop the, both the corruption, the crime, the terrorism, and and, uh, you know, Treasury has a big, and S Secretary Mnuchin pointed out yesterday, he's spending a large portion of his time uh, on the counterterrorism efforts, the, the right. sanctions efforts. To One of the discussions yesterday was about uh, Venezuela, where the people aren't free and where uh, the, the, and so there's a big world right. effort to say, how do we get everyone growing better? My book of the year last year, Ken Rogoff on cash and on corruption in cash. Sweden is providing leadership on this issue. India's had the courage under huge uproar. India has the courage to address this. Does the Trump administration have the courage to, do, to go after cash and suitcases? There's huge courage, and yes, absolutely, cash in suitcases, meaning illicit funds. Uh, there's a, there is a uh, giant, I, I would say, all fronts effort within the government to stop that because of the security of Americans. Uh, that's the highest priority, along with jobs. And so, uh, you can do that by applying people. By I'm 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 having meetings all day yesterday, today, and tomorrow on 
that, that touch on, uh, well, the G7 meeting yesterday, which is the group of seven finance ministers and mm -hmm. central bank heads from the major, uh, from major, seven major economies, uh, had a long session both on cybersecurity and on sanctions. North Korea is an obvious big challenge that people are talking about at these meetings uh, today well, and tomorrow. David Melpes, thank you so much. Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. Sporting conversation there between Tom Keene uh, and David Malpass, formerly of NSEMA Global, now the Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, particularly liked when Tom joked about uh, whether or not he's traveling around the world. Uh, certainly hope that wouldn't be on a private jet. Uh, Secretary Malpass, Undersecretary Malpass, saying that he uh, is off to Asia next week and intends to fly back uh, in economy class. I go back to Washington now, Tom Keene, with a special interview, as I said, with an eminent professor from the NYU Stern School of Business. Tom? Uh, David Gurra, thank you so much, and I hope you can participate in this interview as well. He is Noro Rubini, and it's most interesting, the author of Crisis Economics, and someone, as we all did, maybe missed the amplitude of the financial crisis, but was really out front on a regression to the mean. And it was a mean mean, wasn't it? I mean, it was something in 2008 yeah. and 2009. Right now, Noriel, there's a lot of people talking bubbles. They talk Schiller bubbles and they talk QE bubbles and that. Are we anywhere off the mean like we were in July and June of 2007? No, we're not uh, yet there. There has been a bit of a releveraging in the financial sector. <laughs> especially among non-bank financial institutions. There's been some releveraging of the corporate sector. But I would say that while in 2006 and 2007 we're in the 18-ing of that uh, credit uh, cycle in terms of fraudiness and bubble, right now we might be in the 14-ing, meaning there is uh, some evidence of fraudiness, but we're not <clears throat> at the right. extreme of valuations or excesses that would cause a another financial crisis in the next 12 months. You say. have written repetitively and you're associated with Democrat Party uh, economics and the idea of working with President Clinton years ago. Yeah. What are the ramifications, not so much of Trump theory or Trump um, uh, belief, but what are the ramifications of the rhetoric and methodology out of the White House on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, it creates a huge amount of uncertainty, uh, policy, political, even geopolitical. So far, it has not really affected the markets. The market have discounted that, that uncertainty because they believe that maybe his own main economic and other advisors are guard railing him and they're going to prevent uh, radical action, whether a war with North Korea as opposed to extreme protectionism or restriction to migration from occurring. But I would say it's not a positive for economic growth. And while the president was elected on a populist program mm -hmm. of trying to help uh, lower class, white, blue collars, he has been behaving uh, as a plutocrat. So to me, it's more like no. a Pluto populist because he talks as if he's a populist. But for example, a his tax plan. A Pluto populist? Yeah. Is that the uh, title of your next book? <laughs> not, but maybe it should be because he's a plutocrat well. who pretends to be a populist. If you take, for example, the tax plan of the administration, as independent studies suggest, that 50% of the right. benefit are going to go to the top 1%. This is no populism. This is nothing well, for the middle class. So they talk about the tax cut for the middle class, but it's just okay. uh, talk. Let me bring in our Pluto populist <laughs> here at Bloomberg yeah. Surveillance, David Gurra. David? Nuriel, great uh, to speak with you uh, once again. I want to ask you about uh, the new yes. mediocre, now old. Are we still seeing signs of anything uh, with regard to new mediocre uh, in Washington at these meetings and generally speaking? Well, on one side, the IMF and everybody has upgraded their economic outlook. There is a global expansion that started about a year ago. So there is less talk of a new mediocre in the short run. But as the IMF has pointed out, a short run outlook looks good. But unless significant reforms are undertaken in the US, in Europe, in Japan, in China and emerging market, potential growth in both advanced economies and emerging market has fallen. And while the cyclical upswing can continue for a while, once you hit the bottleneck of supply constraints, then you might get either inflation or if there is easy policy, asset and credit bubbles. And therefore, you'd still need to work to increase potential growth. Otherwise, we're going to go back to the new mediocre after this uh, temporary cyclical upswing. 
You two are in the uh, the IMF atrium, surrounded by devotees, two multilateralism people who are proponents of it and think it's uh, the, the way forward. What does multilateralism look like if the U.S. is, is sitting on the sidelines? In other words, uh, how, how much are you writing the obituary for multilateralism at this point uh, from the U.S. perspective? Well, certainly the U.S. is key for multilateralism, but uh, if the U.S. is going to decide to effectively abandon multilateralism in support for IMF, World Bank, other international institutions, I think there is a chance that other parts of the world are going to go ahead and strike uh, free trade deals. Uh, Europe with China and Asia, Japan with Europe, and so on and so on. So the risk for the United States is that you withdraw yourself from globalization, but other parts of the world are not going to withdraw themselves, and you're going to end up in a situation that is worse for you because beneficial, for example, trade opportunities that we have had in Asia with TPP are not going to be there. And now China is going to take a lead and propose to the TPP country an alternative trade arrangement. So I think it's a <clears throat> major mistake right. that's going to be having negative effects on U.S. potential growth over time. One thing that people don't know about you is you actually have had the piece of chalk in your hand in the classroom teaching people at Yale and at New York University's Stern School of Business. When you have a piece of chalk in your hand, can you teach that tax reform, tax cuts, deficit expansion leads to growth? Can you teach that? Olivier Blanchard was heated the other day. He can't teach that. Uh, I cannot teach it either because uh, we know that <clears throat> if uh, deficit and debts are high and you pile another trillion to two trillion of debt to the existing stock, eventually you're going to actually crowd <coughs> out economic growth. Long-term interest rates might go higher, the dollar is going to go higher, and the jobs and income of the white blue collars who voted for Trump are going to disappear. So those policies actually, through market discipline, are going to have a negative effect would, on economic growth. Professor Rubini, would you suggest that we're seeing a Republican tax wish or hope that is basically a nostalgia for Ronald Reagan, except we don't have the Reagan debt load? That we, we, we have a much higher debt load now? Is it as simple as that? Well, uh, both Reagan and uh, George W. Bush did tax cuts. At that time, however, uh, the deficits were lower, the public debt were lower, 25% of GDP, 50% of GDP. Now we're on the verge of doing another 2 to $3 trillion, maybe more tax cuts and increase in public debt. At the time where our public debt is more like three quarters of GDP, something we cannot afford. And the markets are going to mm. then impose discipline by crowding out of that recovery. That's why they mm. talked about a revenue neutral tax plan, but this is not the revenue neutral tax plan. It could blow the deficit and the debt by up to $3 trillion over the next 10 years. Professor Rubini, let me uh, cast our eyes to Europe if, if, if we could. And, and I, uh, of course, was watching as Michel Barnier was speaking yesterday and talking about how the conversations with the, with the United Kingdom are deadlocked. And I wonder if, if Brexit uh, has been something of a, of a curative here for Eurosclerosis. Do we see a stronger Europe now in the wake of, of Brexit? Yeah, there was some concern that after Brexit, this will be the beginning of disintegration of Europe. And instead, the Europeans have reacted by saying we're committed to the European Union, we're committed to the Eurozone. And actually, there is a cyclical pickup in economic growth also in Europe that is positive. But there are still plenty of uh, political risks uh, involved in Europe. Uh, the situation in Spain with Catalonia is a serious one. And if there was independence, other regions of other parts of the Eurozone and Europe might say, I also want to break away. Uh, in the UK, if the Brexit negotiation lead to a hard Brexit, you could have essentially a breakup of the United Kingdom with Scotland and Northern Ireland leaving the United Kingdom. There are other parts of Europe where there are regional movements want either autonomy or independence. So the response so far of Europe has been positive. Let's try to integrate more, but there's still a significant disagreement on what integrating more means, and therefore we should not take that one as obvious. There's still meaningful risk over time, not in the short run, of uh, forces right. lead to disintegration of the European Union. Can we have a recovery in investment? Can we have a recovery? Very quickly here, Professor, can we have yeah. a recovery in investment given the oddities in the fixed income market? Don't we need a normal rate structure? to get the confidence there to boost investment? Well, certainly the structure of uh, fixed income markets and the rates matter. Uh, the paradox, however, today is long-term rates are very low. The term premium actually still negative. Mm -hmm. uh, short rates are still very low. So the cost of borrowing is extremely low. 
and, and institutions like corporates are doing a lot of financial engineering because it's very cheap to borrow, yeah. like buying back shares or you name it, but what they're well, not doing is capex. So the paradox is that we don't need lower interest rate to have a higher capex because they are already low. Why firms are not investing? And they're not investing because there is not enough probably growth because there has been such an increase in inequality okay. that there is anemic <clears throat> consumption growth and there is still slack in the economy. We're going to have to leave it there. Nora Rubini, thank you so much for this visit at the meeting of the IMF and World Bank. David? And much more coverage throughout the morning. Tom Keen there at the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. You can get that right here on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. to go back to Washington now. My colleague Tom Keene is in Washington, D.C. this week for the annual meetings of the IMF uh, and the World Bank. We've been having conversations about uh, Europe throughout the morning. We're going to continue that now. Tom is seated in the atrium with a special guest. Here's Tom. What is so important to me is the generational change in the labor dynamic of Europe. You have been front and center in France on the dialogue between a distrustful labor and a distrustful elite in Paris. Let's start with France. Where does that stand right now, that interesting history of socialism, labor, and the elite? I, I, I think France is probably the country which is the more doubtful about uh, its elites, about itself. Uh, I think that France suffers from the image that it was at the center of Europe before reunification and mm -hmm. that now it's somewhere in the fringe. Uh, and this country could have uh, chosen populism. And the strange thing and the positive thing is that finally it stuck to its value and chose to elect a, a young president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, with a very pro-European uh, language. And the French are not uh, unable to be reformed. There are people who are uh, at the same time worried and generous. And I think that now it's high time for this country to reform. The, 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 the France is also in a recovery. And it's clear that we need also to find a compromise between uh, labor uh, and wealth. Uh, and that's probably uh, what the difficulty is today to, to find a strong social dialogue exactly. in order to have economic reforms. That social dialogue wraps around an interesting European capitalism. Is there a generational shift going now after the election of Macron and certainly the stunning results in Germany where the far right re-enters the Bundestag? Is there a generational shift in the European social contract? Uh, First, uh, there could be a contradiction between Macron and AFD because there's two opposite moves. But I would say uh, that uh, populism in Europe, and one must be conscious of that, there are elections in Austria this Sunday and the extreme right will be strong, a strong right will be high. Uh, populism has lost some battles, and especially in France. Madame Le Pen was not elected and, and had a poor result. But populism has not lost the war. There is this feeling that uh, people are dissatisfied with their own elites. It's maybe stronger than the general Schoenow effect, even if uh, sometimes mm -hmm. it takes uh, uh, the, the figure of, of youngsters. It, it, it was the case in France. It could be the case uh, in Austria. So uh, we need to be uh, maybe more careful about that, even if in France it's clear that the whole political system, right. you're talking about the mainstream parties, my party, Socialist Party, now is threatened to disappear. And, and we'll That's need to, amazing. We'll need to fight to recover. It can, because there is still a, a will. Will you provide leadership for that? I mean, to rip up the script here, this is so important as we go domestic French politics. Can you lead the way <laughs> no, on the recovery I, 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 of the I, socialist I, I, movement I've got a, a bit of things to do here mm -hmm. in Washington, and especially in Europe. Uh, but I will try to provide ideas, because I think that uh, uh, my generation is, is not uh, so ancient that right. we cannot deliver messages. So I, I try to read, to think, to express my th myself. Leadership is another question. Right. Uh, but, of course, the next elections being European elections, I will have a, a, a close look well, at it. But, well, let's go back to the essential. Uh, uh, I, I, it's clear that those parties, as well my party, Socialist Party, and the rightist party, the Republicans, suffered a lot. Mm -hmm. And so there is a new generation. Is it definitive? Uh, can there be a comeback? 
it's, it's, it's one of the challenges of the years Just because of time, I've got to go to Brexit. I think of the ancient geography of Calais and the t distrust and tension signified by Calais between France and the United Kingdom, and now we see Brexit as well. What do you need from Mr. Hammond? What do you need from Prime Minister May right now to jumpstart the Brexit debate to a constructive 2018? Our, our position is very clear and it's very <coughs> firm. Uh, it's a divorce. It's a divorce that needs to be a, a good divorce uh, with a strong relationship after the divorce. But to discuss about the future relationship between EU and UK, and UK will be a European country, even if not inside uh, the EU, uh, we need first to, to, to solve the issues that are on the table. And, and the first thing is that we need to have a strong, precise and definite discussion about the financial settlements and also about citizens' rights. So first things first. Uh, in the future, of course, we will be close yeah, but together. This is critical. As you use the divorce model, do you need a more do you need a more structured dialogue, a la a court process in divorce, or something squishy like American arbitration in divorce? What do you need from the British? Do you need more precision, a more acute dialogue from them? A few weeks ago, Madame May delivered a speech in Florence, which was, uh, and everybody appreciated it, a progress mm -hmm. because. Uh, that they, she took yes, into consideration the idea of transition, etc., etc., and the reaction by all EU stakeholders was, yes, it's getting better. But uh, everybody said at this time we need to move from this speech, which is good, to uh, precise proposals, and we are still waiting for them. And this is why uh, yesterday we had to say that there was not sufficient progress to move forward. But uh, let's not be too pessimistic. In the two months to come, and that's what our negotiator Michel Barnier right. said. Progress is possible, and progress has to happen. And it can be decided outside the courtroom as well. Who's going to drive this dialogue for Europe? You represent Mr. Juncker in the voice of the European Commission, the European Union, or will it be driven by the state leaders, Chancellor Merkel, Mr. Macron, and the others? We've got a very precise organization, and our British friends are aware of that. We have a single, a unique negotiator, Michel Barnier. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a director general in the Commission. He acts in the name of the Commission, all the Commission. You spoke about Phil Hammond. I discussed with him. He's a friend. But I'm not negotiating with Phil Hammond. And no commissioner is negotiating with his counterpart. But Michel Barnier does not only represent the Commission. He has a clear mandate by uh, the European Council and mm -hmm. reports to the European Council each time it meets. So uh, uh, the, the, the British side must know, and it knows, that the 27 have right. a very clear position and that they are totally united and they will stay so. Good news for you. We see Bank of America decide they're going to move bodies from London to Paris. Everybody knows everybody wants to live in Paris. We've known that for years. Are we going to see more people in London, in the city, make the choice of Muscovici's Paris? Uh, it's, uh, uh, today, I mean, Brussels is not in Paris, but uh, Paris is, of course, a fantastic city. Uh, what is clear is that through these shifts, and it's not the only one, uh, there is Paris, there is Frankfurt, there is Amsterdam, there is Berlin, right. there are other centers, also Spain. Uh, you, you, you can see how necessary it is for these banks uh, to have a very strong foot yeah. uh, inside the Eurozone. Uh, and this is why I'm a very strong advocate of the Eurozone. I think that uh, after the Brexit, uh, Euro will be 85% of the GDP of the Europe as a whole, and we need to deepen right. our Eurozone. Are my Hermes bow ties going to be more expensive because of Brexit? Do we know that yet? No worry. No worry. There we go. Pierre Moscovici, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.